Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Christopher Clary about his new book, The Master, The Long Run, and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. Uh, all you tennis fans and most of you sports fans out there probably know of Christopher. He's covered tennis for the New York Times for what seems like forever, uh, probably to him. It does for me. Um, and, uh, you know, Christopher is... You know, he's at the top of his profession. He, he's one of the leading voices on tennis in the world. Um, I think I read, I believe, Chris, you covered over 100 uh, Grand Slam tournaments. Is that right? Hi, Paul. Yeah, I've been, I'm not sure it's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's what we're at. We've gotten into triple digits here. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I think it's impressive. Um, so anyway, Christopher, welcome to the show. It's, it's really a treat to have you on. Thank you for having me, Paul. And I, I love talking about this book. The reaction has been so encouraging to me and so it's been fun to see it kind of spread around the world a little bit by little bit you know yeah um so as as we said before we kind of came on the podcast um you know as i said the the great thing about this book and there have been you know there's been a lot obviously written about roger federer and a few books i believe um what stands out to me about this one is there's so much about him off the court you know what his his childhood influences were um, from coaching standpoint and, and other influences, um, the way he carries himself in, at charitable events, uh, the way he can mingle so seamlessly with CEOs of major corporations. Um, and, you know, you begin this book with a scene after an exhibition match that Federer played in Argentina. And you described kind of the bedlam outside of the arena when he was when he exited, which didn't surprise me. But what, what did surprise me was, you know, that you, you described this wasn't necessarily normal for him to be mobbed in that way. How is how is Federer generally greeted around the world? Well, I think that's funny, Paul, because I, at that stage, I was surprised, too. I mean, I was uh, seemed to me that would be his his natural habitat in some ways with the level of popularity he had by then. But I guess part of it comes from being Swiss and living in that sort of uh, very particular sort of bubble where there's 
they don't like their people to get too big in the head and they kind of keep them grounded. And he's well aware of that. And also he was living a lot in Dubai at that point too, which is another kind of isolated place. And then he was on the circuit. So the regular circuit place to place, yes, you get that fan enthusiasm in the hallways of the Grand Slams or on the court, of course, but they kind of live in protected sort of environments. They're in the same hotels or the same sort of little uh, courtesy cars or whatever it is. So maybe in a way he was much more insulated than I realized. And then that night he picked that exhibition to go to South America because he'd never really been there and he wanted to tap into a place that he'd never been. And, and he'd been told there was enthusiasm for him and what he represented. And I think he was kind of blown away <laughs> by the level of you know, popular fervor that there was about him. And I, I really sensed that that night in the car, we were driving from this place called Tigre, a suburb of, of Buenos Aires, back to his hotel in central Buenos Aires. And it was kind of like uh, traveling with Van Halen or something like that, you know, back in the day. <laughs> just, people pressed up against the glass and pursuing the car and shouting and waving their RF caps and everything. And he was like a little kid, honestly, looking out the window. He was sort of amazed by it all. And I think that sort of ability to benefit and profit from those kinds of moments um, it's sort of, sort of his hallmark. And it really struck me. That's why I started the book there because I felt like it showed what he had achieved, but that he also was still fresh with that achievement. And so I think that helps explain the longevity of Roger, which is of course, one of the, the big things in his career that'll, that'll stay when he's done the, how long he lasted and how long he excelled. Absolutely. Particularly in, in that sport, because, you know, we, I mean, we could run down the list of guys from Bjorn Borg to, you know, McEnroe in a sense to uh, Roddick, who who uh, Roddick was a little older, but who you know who who burned out uh, at relatively young ages, and either because they couldn't handle the spotlight or they couldn't handle the grind of of the you know the the, the season and, and the traveling. And but you, I got the sense reading your book that that Federer is kind of nourished by uh, to some extent the attention, but certainly the traveling. How, how does how does Roger navigate, um, you know, this this life of constant travel as the most famous tennis player in the world? Well, I think he's it's, it's a acquired it's an acquired expertise, and there's some natural elements to it too. But just to your first point, Paul, I mean, you think about the idea of what a tennis player's you know normal career was when Roger arrived on the scene. I mean, his role models were Pete Sampras. Boris Becker, Stefan Edberg, those are the three guys that he looked up to the most when he was coming up. Those were sort of the generation before him. And think about it, all three of those guys were done by their early 30s, their very early 30s. And those are the tacking players that he saw himself in their, in their games and aspired to play like them. And then he had exposure early in his career to Andre Agassi, who went longer, mid-30s, and excelled. And that was pivotal. And then as he got to know the circuit more and, and connect more with the past, he realized people like Laver. Rod Laver and Ken Rosewall, particularly Rosewall, had played on into their late 30s and in Rosewall's case, early 40s. So there were examples that came into his uh, vision along the way. But as far as how he's handled what you're talking about, all that, um, you know, the grind, what a lot of players call the grind of the tour, I think he's kind of the perfect storm in a way of a guy, because of his multiculturalism and the way he grew up with kind of adventuring, you know, adventuresome parents. His father left Switzerland to go to South Africa. That's where he met Roger's mother. His mother is a dynamo. Lynette is full of energy and curiosity and just a very vivacious person who likes people. So I think genetically, Roger had a good base there. 
And then growing up in Basel, Switzerland, which is where his parents ended up, which is a very multicultural, multilingual city. So you're used to changing the chip culturally just by your daily life. You know, you go, go across town and you're in another language group, basically. So he grew up with German and English swirling around him, English in the house for sure. And a lot of French in the background, although he didn't learn it till later. So there's that aspect of it. And then I think he realized early on, maybe from watching others, that this, there were a lot of elements of the tour that could kind of drag you down. The routine of it, the the jet lag, the pressure, the competitive nature of every locker room and every place. So I think he just kind of systematically picked ways of coping with all that, all those different elements of the of the tour. And he he as he became more and more connected to the identity of the sport as kind of an ambassador, he kind of took it on himself to uh, to play those roles with class and with, with positive energy. And he, he understood himself over time about how much energy he had. And so I think he's been very, very smart. I think we can all learn from this, Paul, about picking his spots. And when he needs to kind of seek refuge and recharge, he does that very consciously. So when he goes back out in those worlds, whether it's a sponsorship meeting or, or a press conference or a one-on-one interview with somebody like me or, or, uh, the locker room or whatever it is on tour, he's, he's fully energized and ready to do it and willing to do it. And I think when he, he's, maybe he's had problems in his life is when he's maybe been out of sync with that, but he's very, he's very in tune with himself that way. And um, I think that's really a key to why he's been able to, to thrive and enjoy the game as much as he has, even though he's had plenty of setbacks. I was touched reading your book by how willing Federer was to help out competitors of his, you know, with, with their charitable endeavors uh, from Andy Roddick to, to Rafa. Um, and of course, I, it, it was interesting to hear, you know, how he, he appears to be as comfortable chatting with CEOs as he is hitting a tennis ball. Um, what, what does that say about his character? Well, I think it goes back to what we were just talking about a little bit in the sense of how he grew up in these environments where there was a lot of natural shifting going on anyway. And he comes from a, a bicultural home with his mom being South African, uh, English speaking, even though she speaks Afrikaans as well, um, and his dad. And Switzerland itself is a is a cultural mix, as you know. So that that's certainly part of it, uh, no doubt about it. Um, but I, you know, I think he's a bit of a chameleon, Paul. To be honest with you, when you watch him in different settings, I and mean, he's able to really adapt himself. He's extremely empathetic, I think, um, unusually so for an athlete, which a lot of times athletes have to be selfish by by design to succeed. Roger has those elements of being able to double down on himself, but he really he really feels the environments he's in and senses the room, I think in a lot of ways, reads the room. And um, I think that's when you watch him, he can kind of glide from buddy laughing, joking, swearing, if you will, maybe in a, in a locker room setting with his buddies and kind of hanging out and being a pal and then moving into a CEO suite very quickly where he's sort of cleans it all up and everything is pulled into place and he can talk business or he'll, you know, Family guy, he'll be playing with his kids and joking around and, sw- and swinging them around by by the arm. So I mean, it's all of us to some degree have to do that, right? But I think just sure. because of the life he leads, it's very public, a lot of it, and also it's very compressed because these shifts from you know suddenly the roars of thousands in the court to a a back boardroom to a press conference situation to family to 
it was very abrupt. And, and I think people talked about this for the book, about how they were sort of amazed sometimes that he'd be sort of chatting off court before a big match and kind of joking and saying, hey, how you doing? Meeting a sponsor or somebody and then step out on the court and boom, gladiator time. So I think that's really uh, unusual. I mean, a lot of athletes have to find a way to cope with that, but I think he, he did it pretty naturally. And, uh, and I think he just has a very, that's one of the reasons why it's called the master. He has, I think he has a mastery now of this domain, all the different parts of pro tennis and being a celebrity athlete that he's managed to, uh, to come to grips with and, and essentially master. So, you know, as, as we've been talking about Federer is, you know, in many ways as smooth on the court, uh, as smooth and graceful off the court as he is on it. Obviously, nobody's perfect. What situations tend to rattle Federer or make him uncomfortable? Look, I mean, I, I, first of all, I think Roger is not the same polished in like an everyday setting as he is. You see him on court. I mean, he's he's kind of playing. He's kind of playing against type, Paul, in a way. He's somebody as you from reading the book and this what he had to do to conquer his his own demons in terms of his anger and his frustration and his self control. It was a, a lot of work to be done there. As Anybody who's followed Roger from the beginning would know, and the, the book points out in, in a lot of detail. And that, that, to me, that whole path was very interesting to see how he how he did it, who helped him, what the process was like, and it was a long process. And even now, I mean, I think that controlled sort of zen zen like focus he has on the court doesn't necessarily apply to how he is off the court. He's much more relaxed and joking, and and uh, kind of um, somebody who's more exuberant and spontaneous than you see on the court. So there's a big difference there, for sure. Um, but as far as things that make him uncomfortable, you know, I, he doesn't like friction or controversy or he, does, I, he doesn't mind hearing different points of view, I think, from what I've seen and, and sort of taking that on board. But he likes it to be done in a, in a collegial way. And I don't, I don't think he's comfortable with sort of a, a kind of an aggressive um, kind of friction, friction filled sort of environment and tries to keep that to a minimum, I think. And the people he chooses are reflective and, and uh, collegial and people around in his camp and his team. And yeah, I think the times when he's been uncomfortable too, but maybe it's sort of when some of these issues with the game have exploded into the public arena with, you know, player controversy with this, with the game and, and wanting more power, but kind of doing it in a very uh, aggressive um, activist way. He's somebody who prefers to work, I think, behind the scenes and kind of smooth things over, use his influence in that way and kind of keep the public uh, vision and facade pretty smooth and maybe work through the problems, you know, behind the scenes. I think that's sort of what that's that's definitely a key. And I think, you know, it's tennis is a tough thing in that loyalty is sometimes hard to sustain because you got to change coaches, you got to change physios, you got to change fitness trainers in most people's case. You know, your your team does evolve, and I think those have those also have been hard moments for Roger to sort of make choices about who he who he picks and doesn't pick, and why, and and making those breaks like he did with some of his early coaches. And uh, I know that's been a source of uh, of some pain and difficulty for him as well. So I think I think I think that's it's more just doesn't like doesn't like uh, too many big waves. It isn't comfortable in those kind of waters. So. You know, as you talk about the book, Federer wasn't, he wasn't raised with a racket in his hand from the time he could walk, like say, you know, an Andre Agassi. Uh, he played other sports when he was young. How do you think his kind of later specialization 
affected his development. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a book book called Range that did, you know, had got a big audience a few years ago. Smart book. It starts out talking about Roger and, and Tiger Woods. Right. Yeah, it's excellent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of of um, of specialization not necessarily being a positive thing and sort of Roger's multi multi-sport focus early on how much it helped him. There's, there is truth in that for sure. I mean, but then you look at, I actually talk about this in the book too. You, you look at the, uh, the very narrow history of tennis. <laughs> there are a lot of examples of people who were ultra focused who succeeded pretty well. So, I mean, Andre being one, the Williams sisters would count as another, even though they had a lot of off court special things that were sort of broader in their general education. But as far as sports went, it was tennis, Sharapova, another one, um, Steffi Graf. There are a lot of examples. Monica Sellis. So I, I, I can't say that model doesn't work, but I think in Roger's case, it definitely um, helped him physically. I think in terms of just the way he expresses his tennis and how part of his flow and elegance and, and natural uh, grace comes from having played a lot of different sports and having had that focus early on being um, coordination in many different la- layers and levels. But then there are a lot of kids do that and don't play tennis the way he does. So there's some, some natural genetics there too. And I think also the fact that um, he didn't really bear down 100% on tennis until he was probably 13, 14 years old. That certainly helped him in the, be mentally fresh. And his, he didn't grow up, as you say, in an environment where in his home, it was like, Roger, you're going to be a tennis star. Or even Roger, you're going to be a sports star. It was just his parents were upper middle class uh, professionals. And his dad was a chemical engineer. And he grew up in a professional household and they didn't need Roger to be a success in tennis for the family to succeed. So that's already a different construct than a a lot of tennis champions and sports champions. So it it ultimately came down to him. I mean, his parents certainly pushed at times and they've remained very involved in his career, which tells you that they, they are fully invested, but the choice to be a tennis star and go that direction was really left to Roger. And when he left home and, at uh, age 14 to go to Ecu uh, Blanc, which was the national training center in the French speaking part of Switzerland, which he would call the critical two years of his early career in a lot of ways. That was really hundred percent his call. He made that call because he felt like that was where he could develop his game and his parents really weren't pushing him, everything, everything that I've heard. So it, it, the fact that it came from him, the fact that he had exposure to all these different sports uh, early on, and he was a, like Rafa, a heck of a soccer player from, by all accounts. I think that really helped him sort of uh, stay fresh. And you could argue, although this, I'm not sure how you prove this, um, but I think, and Range would talk about this as well, the book, that maybe it helped keep him injury free for a long time too, because he didn't overload the body with huge numbers of reps at an early age and create imbalances. And, you know, obviously in later years, he's had major injury issues and has been out now for a big chunk of time because of his knees. But for 35 years, it was an amazing run, pretty clean, despite, you know, back problems and different things. But as far as the overall injury picture, remarkably clean. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously he, to, to reach the level of success that he has and to maintain it, he's, he's a man of tremendous focus. And um, one of, my favorite anecdotes from the book was uh, when Roger dropped out of te- dropped out of school to pursue tennis full time, 
and his dentist was critical of of his decision and Federer never went back to his dentist again <laughs> and i just i i was so well told i i just thought it was such a nice little little anecdote what do you think that said that that instance says about about Roger yeah paul i love that story yeah, and i think of, of all the ones in the book that it's funny how often that one comes up from people say that was that was great that, that was that says a lot about him i thought it did too and basically this real quickly he's Decides to go pro at 16 in Switzerland, which is a conservative education-based society in a lot of ways. Um, goes back to his family dentist in Basel, and then the dentist sort of says, so Roger, you know, what are you doing with your life? And Roger's in the dentist chair, so he's got his mouth full of all the dentist things. So hard to have a conversation anyway. But he, he says, you know, I'm, I'm a tennis player. I'm playing tennis. I'm, I'm going for it. And, and and the dentist was just very skeptical and was like, come on, uh, that's great. What else are you doing? You know, what, what's your other plan? And I, Roger, I'm really, I'm just doing that. And he said, he looked at me and he, he kind of paused after he told that part of the story. And then he looks at me and goes, you know, I never went back. <laughs> I never went back. I says, I, I wanted to be, at that point in time, it meant a lot to me to be surrounded by people with positive energy who believed in what I was trying to do because I needed to, I needed that support. And this, and this was not happening here. So I was, I'm going to eliminate that. From, from my uh, my soundtrack, and I think that's something he's done throughout his career. I mean, I think he he can hear the the, the noise and the static, but he really prefers to hear you know feel that positive energy and and people who have that uh, constructive approach to things. I remember he's him telling me once, you know, we have a professional. We're not friends. It can't be as a journalist. But I remember him telling me once that uh, you know, I like your journalism because it's constructive. When you criticize this with, with an objective in mind, I'm not sure that's entirely true. I'm, I'm sure I've screwed up plenty of times, but I, I think that generally is the approach I try to take is to try to be constructively critical. So that, that he pointed that out was interesting to me. It tells you how his mind works. And I think he's somebody who, uh, who uh, has been very, very good at creating the right environment to thrive that fit his personality. But it also shows, uh, you know, sometimes there's an element of, Wishing it to be true, making it true, right? I mean, you could argue it wouldn't be bad to have a critic in your ear sort of saying, hey, you shouldn't be able to do that or you shouldn't do that. Maybe it's not bad to react to that for some personalities. But in his case, it's not what he wanted. Right. So you've covered Roger for a long time now. Uh, do, you, do you have an early memory? Was there a time when you, you, know, you, you first realized, wow, this guy is really special or something that stood out to you about him early on? Well, I talk about this in the book too, obviously, because this is a kind of the journey with him through the years. But I saw him play the first time in person at the French Open, his very first Grand Slam match, actually, against Patrick Rafter, the Aussie champion, who was, I think, number one in the world at that time in 1999 on red clay. So I saw him play there because a couple of agents who didn't represent him, actually, told me I should go watch him. And and of those days, it was pre-social media, so there was no, like, Twitter buzz or anything else. You wouldn't have seen clips of him really playing like you would now with a great young promising player. So I, I went out and watched and he beat Rafter in the first set actually looked great, kind of volatile. I was impressed, put him on the radar, but didn't think, you know, about him on a kind of cosmic level. And then 2001. So a couple years later, about a year and a half later, um, he, uh, he played for Switzerland in Basel against the U S in Davis cup back when Davis cup really mattered. Uh, so Todd Martin, you might remember, was you know, obviously a top five player from the U.S., part of that great generation. He went with Jan Michael Gamble, 
to uh, to play against the Swiss in Basel indoors, kind of Rogers home arena. And I went to cover was Patrick McEnroe's debut as the captain of the team. So I was kind of going to do that story. Started watching the matches and Roger was just had reached a different level. You could just see it on this surface in this place. And I was just watching him play and I don't usually have these kind of reactions, but I was watching him play these matches and I go, this guy is going to win Wimbledon multiple mm-hmm. times. Cause you could just see him, even though it was an indoor court, just the way he was flowing around the court, the fact there was no, real barrier to him anywhere. Everywhere he went, he looked natural and he was attacking with such ease and this game was so polished and it's just smooth. And so it felt like Sampras 2.0 a little bit, you know, just watching him play. And I just, I just, I rarely had those kind of feelings when I watched that kind of certainty watching a tennis player and I've watched a lot. So that was unforgettable to me. And that's when I first interviewed him briefly after the matches and got a look at him and, got a sense of who he was and he was already doing his interviews in the three languages of Swiss German and French and English at that point. So it was kind of a preview of all those years to come, but he was just completely in command and destroyed the U S won all three points and kind of single-handedly, although it was doubles as well, beat them. And they all kind of came away impressed. And that was also Andy Roddick's debut in Davis cup. That same that same one, Roddick was there as the kind of the fifth man, and he got put in a dead rubber after the match was already decided. So interesting that they, they kind of converged there. But I was sure after that that Roger was something special. I was not exactly the first one to have that conclusion, but that was my conclusion at that time. And after that, I just kept the closest of watches on him. And, and then he beat Sampras at Wimbledon in that great match later that year. So he didn't, didn't win the title that year a couple more years for it all to come together which was interesting in itself but clearly that he was ready to do, to do great things already then do you have a sense of when roger knew he was going to be a guy who you know not just would maybe win wimbledon once or twice but that he was going to be an all like an all-time great player you know i'm not sure i've ever asked him that question that's a good question uh just based on the evidence he obviously, the time I'm describing before the previous question, 2001 to 2003, that was a really tough part, tough period for him. He knew he had this amazing potential. It was clear to him probably by the late 90s and the things he was hearing and people who were talking to him and sort of uh, all that, that he had something special within him. Interestingly, at this time, this is also, I thought, an interesting anecdote from the book. His father, you know, Robert, who was very involved in his son's career at this stage with the business side of things and everything else, one of Roger's first agents was a guy named Régis Brunet. He was French, former French player who represented a lot of players. And he was with IMG and he signed up Roger when he was in his teens. And Régis told me that Robert Federer would often come to him and say, so I know he's good, but how good can he be? Is he really going to be one of the best? Is he really going to be one of the best? How good can he be? And he, he supposedly would ask this question a lot, probably because Robert had not been a tennis player at any high level himself. So didn't have the expertise, but just, it sort of shows you that within the family, there was a sense that it was possible, but there was still a lot of doubt. Cause I guess mm-hmm. there, you know, logically there, there should be, but it wasn't like there was some sort of vision of Roger, the champion that had to be fulfilled. It was still very uncertain. And I think in Roger's own mind, maybe that held him back a little bit too. The fact that there was this uncertainty, but interestingly, after he won Wimbledon and the Aussie open 2003, 2004, so he won two of three slams there. Roddick won the U S open in between. Um, 
after he won those two, that's kind of when he put his plan in place for long-term success with his fitness trainer, Pierre Paganini, who's kind of a, a philosopher king, if you will, of a guy, despite the big muscles and, and the heavy sweat. He's really an interesting guy. So they put together this plan where less was more, and he would dial back the tournament play and, and keep the training very smartly focused so he could last. So that tells you right then and there, when you're doing that in early 2004, uh, that you have a sense that you can be a great, great player and you can do a lot in the game. Because why? Well, otherwise you'd be chasing the money while you had it and chasing the opportunity. And that was not his plan and not his approach. So it was. I think it was pretty clear to him once he took over the game in early 2004 that um, that he was destined to to do great things in the game. How great? I think even he would be surprised. I think as Rafa Nadal's just said at the Australian Open, when asked about this chase for the all-time great, you know, uh, lead in Grand Slam singles titles for the men, he was. I, th- I think Roger Novak and I have all surpassed what we would have expected of ourselves. And I yeah. think he's right. I think he's right about that. But I, but I think Roger did think he was on the path to some form of greatness by early 2004. Can you talk a little bit about his wife, Mirka, and the role she's played in his career? Absolutely critical. I mean, I, I would love to have interviewed Mirka for this book, as, as anybody who's written about Roger in recent years would have loved to have interviewed Mirka. But she's been off limits for, you know, nine, 15 years now. Uh, she is absolutely pivotal to his career. I mean, there are three people who are pivotal to his career. Mirka, Pierre Paganini, who I just mentioned, his fitness trainer, who's been with Roger for 20, 20 years plus now and critical to the way he prepares himself and mentally and physically. And then Peter Carter, who was his boyhood coach from Australia, who, who died young. But Mirka is the day-to-day uh, thread like no other. And basically... I think a huge factor in Roger maximizing the player and person he, he could be, and also uh, giving him the stability uh, with expertise because Mirka herself was a high level player. She was, she's Swiss like Roger from an, or his, his family's partially immigrant. Hers is fully immigrant from Slovakia and um, very ambitious family. And she was raised to be, to be a champion, I think. And, was top 100 by early 2000s, 2000, 2001 or so. And then her career was stopped by major foot injuries, major foot problems. And she and Roger had already kind of come together. They knew each other in the late 90s, and then they ended up falling in love at the Olympics in Sydney, 2000. They were both on that team. And Merka only got on that team because of other, other players withdrawing. So it's a little bit of a... It's remarkable that they even had that opportunity because the odds of her playing in the Olympics were pretty slim that year with Martina Hengis and Patty Schneider and others. And so she uh, and Roger started their relationship then. And and in those early years, that pivotal period of 2000 to 2003 or so, when he was he really became a, a champion, she was there every step of the way, helping him, supporting him. And I think uh, some tough love, too, when he needed it. And also when Peter Carter, his boyhood coach, died in 2002, you know, Mirka was a huge part of him getting through that very, very difficult period in his life. It was one of the most important people in his life who died when Roger was very young and was a huge blow. I know she helped him through that. And obviously since then, marriage, two sets of twins, and still having the desire to get on the road, 
And a lot of other people would say, hey, <laughs> we've had a great run here. No more required. Uh, let's let's enjoy life in Switzerland and Dubai or wherever. And she's had the motivation to keep picking it up and getting out there and doing it and uh, supporting what he can do. Probably, I'm sure, through her, some of her own ambition, but also recognizing that that's, that was his calling and what he was meant to do. And and he he will he'll tell he'll tell you every time and that she's my rock, and uh, I think he's right. Um, we can't talk about Roger Federer without talking about Nadal and Djokovic. Um, it's fascinating because you know when Federer came along um, and and very quickly kind of took over the tennis world, and it became evident that he was going to break uh, Pete Sampras's you know, Grand Slam record and a whole bunch of other records. And I, for a few years, there was a sense that, okay, Roger Federer is not just the greatest player in the world now, but he will, he will go down as the greatest player ever. And he will hold the Grand Slam record and all sorts of records for all eternity. You know, you just got the sense that he was going to be the, the guy for a long time. And then all of a sudden along comes this guy, Rafa Nadal. And then a few years later, Djokovic kind of puts it all together and he's, you know, makes his run. Um, how has Federer dealt with those guys kind of catching him and certainly in Djokovic's case, in, you know, in the present, surpassing him as a player, um, both, you know, both in the present and, and in terms of tennis history and the record books and all that. How has he dealt with that? Well, a couple of things. One, one is that it's interesting to hear you say that he took it over quickly. Because it's interesting, because in a way he really didn't. Um, he he came along as this teen phenom, and as I said in 2001, he beat Sampras at Wimbledon. Looked like okay, here's the new guy. He's ready to take over. He you know he beat Pete in that great. Pete hadn't lost at Wimbledon in years, and Roger beat him in 2001. Um, I think he was 19 at that point. And uh, but but the coronation didn't happen right away. It took him another two years to kind of put it all together and make it happen. So he won his first slam when he was getting close to his 22nd birthday, which sounds young, but in tennis terms, the way things had gone before, that was a little bit late in terms of this great dominant timeline. So he takes over and he finally gets it all going. Wins Wimbledon 2003, Aussie Open 2004. And then he goes to Miami to play the Open, runs into this little Spanish guy who just kind of, kind of just emerged and plays, plays Rafa Nadal. It was second round for Roger. And Nadal beats him, playing amazing tennis. Roger wasn't at his best. He was a little bit ill. But still, you watch footage of the match. So here's Roger's moment. He's taken over the game, as you said. But there's Nadal right away. I mean, just a few months after uh, he takes over. And this is a young guy, much younger than Roger, almost five years younger, who just beats him. And then takes, starts taking, taking out people on clay right and left. He had injury problems that sort of slowed his rise for, for a couple of years as well. But it was clear that Rafa was already in Roger's head and domain a little bit from pretty early on. So that was, I think that was tough because, you know, you just sort of kind of broke free, became the champion you thought you could be. And then here's this other guy suddenly who, who rises and has a game that can really trouble you on, on a lot of, in a lot of surfaces, not just clay, but hard courts too. So I think it was hard for Roger for sure. Yeah. I mean, just accept that. He said that himself. I mean, just to try to deal with, the emergence of this, he was probably in a lot of ways, as I said before, he's the guy who doesn't like a lot of friction. He was, he is, and would have been just fine being the king, <laughs> top of the hill, you know, sort of the benevolent despot, if you will. Um, and 
that's not the way it played out for very long. I mean, he had his, his areas of dominance for sure. Wimbledon, you know, five times in a row and the U.S. Open as well. But there was always, in the day-to-day circuit outside, there was a specter of Rafa. And then Rafa became obviously a bigger threat everywhere by 2007, 2008. 2008 Wimbledon final that Rafa won. So I think Roger really had to come to grips with that. There's that that scene in Australia in 2009 when he cries after Rafa beats him in five sets. Roger will tell you there were a lot of reasons for those tears. It wasn't just about disappointment, but it was also just trying to manage the situation and being upset that he was upset because he couldn't let Rafa have his moment. It was a lot of different things mixed up, but nonetheless, it was obviously emotionally difficult for him. And I think he finally came to grips with that, and he and Rafa kind of developed an entente cordiale across the language barrier and kind of realized this rivalry was great for tennis, even though it was hard for them, but it was great for the sport, and they kind of dug into it. And then Novak emerges right around that time, and that creates another layer of difficulty. And I, I don't know if Roger ever has fully come to grips with Novak situation in that I don't think that they're particularly close, and there's an edge to their rivalry a little bit. It's not a Connors-McEnroe edge. But it's there's an edge, and I and I think yeah, I think it has been tough and it's been motivating. I think it's pushed him to get more out of his game, more out of his career. Um, but I think he's made a, he makes some good points, and one of the points he makes is that you could call this a rationalization, but it rings true for me is that as these records of his have fallen, Novak's broken some important ones uh, in recent years, especially the number one record consecutive weeks that he broke uh, last year. You know. Roger will tell you, yeah, to have the record is special, but really the, the joy and the, and the adrenaline rush comes from breaking the record and setting it yourself. And that you always have. So ultimately, yeah, to preserve your spot in the game, that's nice. But the real high is, is doing it. And you can make an argument. I personally never have believed in the greatest of all time argument for men's tennis. I think it's very, very hard because of the differences in the eras and and the way things have changed and how the Grand Slams are now the coin of the realm, but they often were not in the past to the same degree. So it's hard to compare. But you could have made a very strong argument at one point in Roger's career that he was the greatest player of all time. So I'm not sure that he could make that argument anymore. On pure tennis results, I think Novak or, or Laver has a stronger argument there, or maybe even Nadal after what just happened in Australia. But at one point, Roger had that argument in his favor, in his favor, I would say. So I think he would take a lot of satisfaction and strength from that. And if you ask him about these records, that's what he, that's what he'll say. So, you know, I know how hard they are to break. I recognize the, uh, the achievement, but I'm glad I had that feeling myself at one point. Federer has so many signature matches from his career wins and losses. As you know, in the book, he came up on the losing end of maybe two of his most famous matches, Wimbledon, uh, against Nadal in, in 08 and Wimbledon again against Djokovic in, in 2019. Is there one match from his career that really sticks with him, that really gnaws at him? Look, he's never said that. I don't think, and I haven't talked to him in great detail about 2019 uh, final. Uh, that would certainly have been the ultimate test of your ability to <laughs> compartmentalize because how maddening must it have been at that stage of his career, at late stage, to have been so close, two match points on your own serve in a against a guy that, you know, really is 
chasing hard at your records and chasing hard at you. So that one, I'm not sure you ever entirely can move on from. I'm not sure it's quite McEnroe-Lendl from the French Open that McEnroe never won. I'm not sure it's that. 84, you know, final out when McEnroe had the two-set lead and lost it. And Lendl had been basically unable to seal the deal and slams until then. And McEnroe opened the door for him. You know, John will say that match still troubles him all the time. Uh, we'll see. I, I don't think Roger is the kind of personality that that'll be the case. But if there is one match, uh, that would stay with him, barring some sort of true tennis miracle in 2022 or 2023 if he were to come back and win it again, uh, which I don't see happening. I think that match will be – that'll be in the in the memory bank and hard to hard to keep completely under control because was, it was such a beautiful thing right on the cusp, and then it turned into such a sad and ugly thing for him, just in a matter of, really just a matter of inches. He had an ace on one of the match points in the right spot, hit the tape, and then lost lost the two points. So, I mean, definitely, uh, for those who follow his career closely, if you mention that match, they wince. So I can only, I can only imagine what, what he must be doing, but I, but I, he is, he is very, very good. Everybody will tell you who's coached him over the years and knows him well. He is remarkably good at moving on from disappointment. So um, the fact that he's back for more, despite all his injuries, and the fact that he still has an appetite to get out there and play some more at an age 40, where it's kind of against logic in some ways, based on all he's achieved, tells you that the fire still burns. So that match didn't didn't extinguish it. Yeah, which, and I wanted to ask you, you know, as you said, he, he's 40. Uh, he's had injuries in, la- in in recent years. You know, this last one's kept him out for a long time. He has four kids. What what is what is fueling Roger Federer at this point to keep going? You know, Paul, I got to say, most of Roger's career decisions and and his approach makes total sense to me. If you know him, this one's a little surprising to me. I, I don't I don't quite know what the unfinished business would be. It might relate to that 2019 Wimbledon final. It might relate to Wimbledon 2021 when he came back from the knee problems and and then lost to Hubie, Hubie Hercatch, six love in the final set, you know, in a very kind of downbeat match at Wimbledon because his knee, I think, was bothering him because Hubie played very well. Whether he wants, he doesn't want it to end that way or if it's just because all around him there are examples in professional sport right now of people breaking barriers and because they still love what they're doing. I mean, Tom Brady just retired, but Brady went into his mid forties. Um, you got soccer players like Zlatan Ibrahimovic playing to age 40 and, you know, high level soccer. You've got all kinds of examples. So maybe he just feels like I don't want to stop. I shouldn't stop for anybody but myself. I'm still feeling this, this desire to express my art and compete. So I'm going to do it. Uh, but I don't think he needs to. And he's mentioned that he's doing it for his fans. I think his fans are, would be would be delighted to see him play him some more, but do his fans really need that closure? I don't think they do. I think that Roger's given them plenty of delight and and drama over 20 years of tennis. So hopefully he's doing it really for himself because it's what he really feels is the right thing to do inside. And also I, there is a factor of he's been through a lot with his knees and body in the last three or four years. He's got young kids still. I know his sons are probably, what are they, seven or eight years old now, his twins? boys. I know he wants to have an active, fun life with them and ski and play sports. And I know his, his sons are interested in tennis. He probably wants to help them and on the court a little bit too. So 
I know part of it is motivating himself to come back to be physically fit and strong for the rest of his life, which makes a lot of sense. But I'm not sure I can, I totally get the need to get back out on court again and, and compete. Okay, Christopher, I'll get you out of here with one last question that I'd like to ask all of my guests. Um, but first, again, let me say the name of Christopher's book is The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. It's really just fascinating. And, and I mean, one of the things that really comes through is is how closely uh, you followed his career. Um, and I, I like how you intertwine, you know, some of the a number of the interviews that you've had with him, you know, as we discussed at the beginning, the the, the incident that, you know, the, 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 the matches in Argentina. Um, but you, you did a great job of kind of, you know, working yourself into the book, not really working yourself in the book, but, but demonstrating how, you know, you were viewing him in his natural environment in a lot of different ways. And I thought that added a great deal to it. Um, so my last question for you, Christopher is what is your all time favorite sports book? Hmm. Wow, that's fun. So you have, that's you always ask this question of all your guests, huh? Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I mean, I I might even, I'm I'm going to go a little different direction in the sense of book because I I just know for me the reason I became a sports writer uh, was because of in the pre-internet era growing up. You know, I'm in my mid fifties. I grew up in the, what for me was one of the golden ages of sports writing. And the ultimate example of that sports writing was Sports Illustrated magazine when I was a kid. And I literally would go to the public library. We moved around a lot as a Navy kid. And I would go into the, you know, the stacks with my copies of Sports Illustrated and I would just read and read and read all these amazing writers about, about sport. Um, you know, Frank DeFord certainly being one for sure. Um, Alexander Wolf is another one who's gone on to write books as well covered basketball, but he covered basketball kind of like Hemingway covered bullfighting, you know, and sort of very cosmic approach to things. So I've read a lot of great sports books and, you know, my favorite tennis book would probably, probably be A Terrible Splendor by Marshall John Fisher, which tells the story of, of Don Budge and Gottfried von Kram, which is a great book about tennis and, and life and the Nazi era and everything else. But I, I think just in terms of influences for me in sports literature or sports writing, it would be Sports Illustrated magazine from that golden era of my childhood and how many, how much I lived uh, the, the dream of those matches and games and Olympics through that magazine. Yeah, sure. I hear you. There, there was some magnificent writing. I mean, like you said, the Ford, Gary Smith, or there was a whole lot of them. Um, all right. Well, Christopher, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, as I said, I love the book and it was really a pleasure to, to talk to you about it. Yeah, Paul, it, it just, it means a lot to get a chance to talk about it. And I really appreciate your interest. You know, the book is, has sold over a hundred thousand copies, um, wow. around the world. Now we've been out for a few months been translated into 13 or 14 different languages. So it's really kind of a Rogers, a global figure. And then the book is, I think had a, chance to kind of have international reach because of the way he resonates across the culture. So it's, it's been really fun to be part of that. And, and a lot, a lot went into this, but I'm, I've really appreciated the chance to talk to so many cool people about, about the, the process and about, and about his career. All right. Well, thanks again, Christopher. Take care.